What's up guys, Luke here from the Shark Pod. This week on the pod we've got Brian Caulfield. This is an incredibly interesting journey that we went on with Brian. Brian is a real uh, original when it comes to the startup scene in Ireland. Uh, got into computer engineering in the 80s, uh, started his own business. Um, was one of the first companies in Ireland to raise venture capital. Uh, he raised 300,000 old pounds uh, back in the, I think, early to mid 90s, something like that. Um, and then from there, he sold businesses. He's been CEO. He's been the executive director of a huge amount of companies, including uh, well-known outlets like uh, the Irish Times, for example. Um, now he's the, the venture partner for Draper Spree, uh, venture capitalists here in Dublin. And we really dig into a lot of the investments that he's made, what makes a good investment, what he's looking for uh, from companies who are trying to raise funding. So if you're out there and you've got a good idea, if you're out there and you're trying to um, get some funding for uh, for your dream, you know, this is one to listen to. Um, like I said, this is one of the, uh, one of the people who were, were really at the forefront of this type of industry in Ireland so it's an incredible uh, story to get on the shark pod so we're very grateful for Brian for coming on and having a chat with us this podcast is brought to you by audible so audible will give you one free audiobook of your choice when you sign up you can cancel any time um, the book that I'm reading right now or almost finished actually is the lifespan book uh, lifespan it really goes into the science about how to live longer but not just live longer but to be healthy for longer so it's a little bit heavy on the science part uh, but it is kind of broken up with a little bit of a conversation with the the guy who's like putting the book together uh, and the scientists so they kind of break it down for you so it's really good that's what i would recommend but if you're not into that type of stuff they have loads and loads of books there for everybody if you like to uh, click through the link and sign up um that would be great all right so over to the guys now to have a chat about all things startup all things venture capital um and just kind of a life journey here with brian caulfield welcome to the shark pod the podcast that explores business and lifestyle design in ireland and beyond and now live from greystone studios here are your hosts luke curry and mark baker What's up, guys? Uh, welcome to the Shark Pod with your host, Luke Curry, and my uh, brother-in-law, as, as ever, in Glenageary. We're still over Zoom. Mark Baker, how are you doing, Mark? Good, good. A nice sunny morning in Glenageary, so uh, yeah, no complaints. It's been a wet week, um, so it's not been great for getting outside. A lot of uh, a lot of TV watching, that type of thing. Uh, today, we're very lucky to be joined by uh, Brian Caulfield. Uh, Brian uh, has been working in technology and uh, VC for a long time it seems like when i was looking at uh, your your linkedin uh, your linkedin stuff so uh, we're delighted to have you here welcome brian thanks thanks very much ha- very happy to join you <laughs> we were, we had a we had a nice chat beforehand as well we were talking about uh, the type of listeners that we get on the shark pod um are people who are starting uh, their own businesses people who are uh, trying to grow businesses a lot of people as well um and so they're interested in figuring out you know where do they get finance how how to kind of scale their business, all that type of stuff. So I think it's going to be really interesting to, to have a chat there. Um, maybe we could have a chat about how you kind of started your career uh, and got into technology originally, um, and then we'll, t- we'll take it from there. Sure. So I, I, I suppose I, I originally am a computer engineer. Uh, I won't tell you exactly when I graduated, but it was a long time ago. And uh, 
Actually, I think the year that I started in computer engineering in college was actually the same year as the first computer science uh, um, class in uh, in Trinity. So I, wow. you know. In retrospect, I suppose it was quite uh, quite early, if you like, for 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 a kind of a computer career in in software. Um, but I came from one of those kind of strange houses where, as a kid, we had uh, a, an Apple IIe and a, a Sinclair, uh, various Sinclair machines actually at home. So okay. it was kind of something that was that was there from, from when I was, uh, when I was pretty young, you know, yeah. um, after I graduated, I did a couple of years of postgrad research working on, uh, one of these European funded, uh, research programs. And then very briefly had a real job, um, working for a subsidiary of a Swiss multinational called Landis and Gear. So I, I worked for them for, I guess, about two and a half years. Um, they found themselves in trouble and they were either shutting or selling off any businesses that were non-core. And that was kind of the trigger to, to, to push me to sort of start my first business, you know. Okay, and it's just so interesting as well. We're, we're talking about the, the the first computer engineering degree. Now, there's there's so much computing uh, education going on all over the place. But when when you were kind of applying for that, was that really were people thinking you know should you do something else? Was that where did people know that it was going to be such a big industry? Where was it a little bit of a risk risk being the first class doing this or? Um, I, I have to say that for me, I, I never saw it as a risk in in any sense. Um, but to be honest, you know, I, I kind of grew up in a generation where, if you like, anything other than going into the civil service or one of the big banks was perceived as being a risk. You, you know, the, the kind of the low risk thing to do well, was to do the civil service exams when, when you finished school and, uh, and, and do that. Or as I said, you know, jo join AIB, you yeah. know. Um, ironically, the, the, and partly because of the impact that technology has had on banking, um, it's probably fair to say that that's not nearly such a, a low risk career as it might, might once have been, you know? 100%. 100%. Okay. So when you start your own business, was that, uh, like, was that in software or was that in uh, consulting? What was the, what was the business there? It, it, it was software. Um, you know, there were a few things that myself and uh, my my colleagues in uh, in the Landison Gear on business had been working on that we we felt were interesting and and, and had potential. So uh, we we really started the, uh, the the business with the intention of taking one of those and, and turning it into a product because under Landis and Gear we'd essentially been a, a services business and we knew we didn't want to be a services business. We felt the services business um, wasn't really scalable, so we we wanted to become a product company. Um, one of the big challenges at that time was that there was no uh, there was no early stage venture capital in Ireland. Indeed, there was probably no early stage venture capital in the whole of Europe. So, um, for us at the time, 
we need to finance the product development by doing services work. So, you know, we did we did projects. You know, uh, for example, we had one big project with the uh, the Irish Naval Service uh, developing uh, a knowledge based system to help them to interpret fishery protection legislation when they were at sea, you know. So we were doing projects like that and uh, essentially using that to, to kind of to finance the, the product development. And I, I think that's, that, that was a tough thing to do then. I, I think it's almost impossible now because I think the pace at which the industry moves is, is so fast that you typically can't, you know, you can't afford to move that slowly if, if you like, you know, you, you need to go all in on your product development typically or, you know, assuming it's a decent market opportunity, somebody else is going to get there before you. So interesting as well. So it's kind of like because there was, wasn't so much going on, there was no um like in like i said in europe there's no one going to come in and uh you know fund so like a competitor uh trying to build that business uh, at the same time so you can afford to take take your time um like do you do you remember when that thing started to change was it during the kind of celtic tiger years where new money was coming into uh kind of uh, not seed but maybe like startup businesses in ireland and the uk I'd say a little bit before that, I, I would have said kind of mid nineties. I think it really started to change, and there were a couple of different, you know, factors. I suppose firstly, we were in the very, very early stages of of what became the the, the dot com boom, you know. Um, but in addition to that, you also had, and I think this is a particularly Irish thing, you also had guys like Frank Kenny, who had worked with a venture capital firm in Boston for many years. He came back to Ireland with his family and um, set up a venture capital firm, but with very much a kind of a U.S. model of, of venture capital. And in, in fact, we were probably one of the first kind of very early stage small Irish software companies to raise VC. We, we raised the enormous sum of, of 300,000 Irish pounds from oh. Delta Partners in, I think it was 1996. And, you know, I mean, that, that isn't even a decent seed round now, let, uh, let, let, let alone a Series A. But I suppose for us, it was, it was essentially a Series A. Um, none of us had ever seen a bigger check. And yeah. I mean, both the size of the physical check and also the number written on us, you know. Good. So uh, we, um, we, we, <laughs> We, we got the check and uh, it was too late to bring it to a bank. So the whole the whole team uh, in the company went to O'Brien's and Leeson Street with this big check to, to, to kind of celebrate the, uh, the, the, the big occurrence, which, which I kind of naively, I mean, I think one of, one of the things in, in business is you often think, if I achieve this, it'll get easier. And usually those achievements actually just ramp up the pressure a bit, you know. <laughs> so you guys 
you you've raised the like I like like we were saying that's an enormous sum uh, in in that in that area when we're talking about um, not having a lot of other options when it came to uh, to financing. Um, what was the the first thing you did with it? Because I remember we were I was working for a startup in Vancouver, uh, and when we got our, our funding, the CEO bought a lot of beanbag chairs, a lot of. Uh, <laughs> a lot of kind of like vending machines and stuff like that there wasn't as much like you know focus at the beginning it got better but uh the first couple of couple of months it was a little bit crazy was it were you guys just was it before that kind of that that side of the technology business where you guys were just plowing that into the product or yeah i mean i think it was a different era um it it was nowhere near as competitive in terms of the recruitment of talent at that stage although within a few years it, it did become incredibly competitive so from our perspective i mean on a personal level i was actually able to start you know myself and my 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 partner in the both my co-founder in the business we were able to start paying ourselves a kind of a reasonably uh, decent um salary not 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 an enormous salary but you know uh, i i'd gone from landis and gear were paying me i think 28000 uh, irish pounds a year you know plus pension plus you know, it was uh, it was kind of reasonably comfortable, and I'd gone from that to ten thousand, and had been sort of bumping along the bottom between maybe ten or fifteen thousand um, as as we as as we tried to kind of to, to grow the business and and to build the product. So venture capital it, it kind of enabled me to. Uh, to, to to pay ourselves, uh, uh, if you like, a, a living wage to start with. In some respects, I suppose we were lucky that we'd been able to pay ourselves anything at all for the the, the, the previous uh, few years. Um, there was no there was no culture at the time of kind of going out buying bean bags or art to hang in the yeah. lobby of the uh, of the office or anything like that. Um, it did enable us to kind of move premises. Um, we we had been based out in in Tala, and at the time it was very very difficult for a sort of a small company to to get a lease on any space anywhere. You know, um, it's still a problem. Actually, you know, you were being asked to sign up for a twenty five year lease. And probably to put uh, six months' rent up front on the table as a deposit, and you know, you you yeah. all of that kind of stuff going on. So it meant we were able to move into uh, into the city centre, into uh, a better location, which made it easier to to attract talent. And it meant we were able to focus much more strongly on product development. And we did continue to do a certain amount of, of kind of services work, but we were really able to focus resources on, on, on building the product and, and, you know, starting to roll the product out to customers. Absolutely. Brian, uh, Dublin's obviously now is a, is a hub <clears throat> for kind of tech companies, tech talent. Were you ever tempted at the time to leave Dublin? And, and to go to the, the States or, or London or anywhere in Europe, maybe? 
Um, you, you know, the funny thing is that when I graduated, it was absolutely my assumption that I was leaving the country. You know, it was uh, it was it was in the eighties. It was uh, you know, to be honest, a pretty shitty time in Ireland, uh, a time when. You know, it literally was kind of you're lucky to have a job. And I, you know, if I think of my peer group at the time, an, an enormous percentage of the people that I was in college with left. Um, some of them did go to the U.S., but in those days it tended to be, you know, a lot of people going to work in Philips in Eindhoven, uh, people going to work for Siemens in Germany, people going to the to the U.K. And, you know, my, my kind of thinking at the time was, I, I'm going to be going abroad. The only question is, uh, is, is where... Um, but then, you know, I, I suppose as they say, face took a hand. I mean, firstly, I did the postgrad research for a couple of years. Um, I'd always been fascinated by the area of artificial intelligence and what a lot of the time were re- referred to as knowledge-based systems. And um, there was this tiny Irish company, which was a subsidiary of Landiston Gear that was kind of working in that uh, in that area. And I was kind of headhunted to join them. So in a funny kind of way, I didn't um, I didn't have to give it too too much thought. And, you know, then I I got married relatively young, I suppose, by today's standards. I was 25 when I got married. And, um, you know, that kind of changes things in, in that respect as well. So I, I, I've, I've traveled an enormous amount from a work point of view, but, uh, but, but all, always have, have, have actually lived here, you know. Um, I mean, I do remember the first time I ever went to Silicon Valley and, you know, I, I kind of, the big software companies at the time were, were still people like Ashton Tate and Borland and, and those, those kind of names. And in the AI space, there were companies like Golden Common and Intellicorp uh, um, and I, I knew their addresses from the packaging of the software, the, the, the boxes the software used to come in, you yeah. know, complete with, with paper printed manuals yeah. and so on. And, you know, the first time I, I was uh, in Silicon Valley, I'm sort of there and it's like, wow, um, on page mill roads, you know, and there was just this kind of, sense of awe almost wow. at, at, at being you know in Silicon Valley you know and I wonder does it still have that it's like is it so dispersed now or is it do you mean if if uh, young people in technology went to Silicon Valley now they still have the same vibe do you think or is it now that was the the real ground zero of all kind of tech, technology in the world you know <laughs> I, I I think firstly I think it is much much more diffuse. You know, um, I, I think there's still a mystique to Silicon Valley, and there's still a lure to Silicon Valley. And you know, even if you look at kind of phenomenal Irish companies like Intercom, I mean Owen McCabe, 
went out to Silicon Valley very, very early after the foundation uh, of, of that company because he really felt that, you know, in order to be able to to, to access the right partners, to access the, 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 the best talent, and in terms of kind of go-to-market, who, who were their customer base going to be, that was where the customers were going to be. So I do think there is, is still that... Um, that lure. Um, personally, I think in a lot of ways, the shine has gone off it. Um, you know, I, I think there, there are issues in terms of a kind of a tech bro culture that, that, okay. that can, be, can be quite corrosive. And I, I think, you know, we're all aware of the housing issues in Silicon Valley and in San Francisco in particular. I mean, that has become much, much worse. It's incredibly expensive to live there. And it's very, very difficult, especially for a foreign company to, to, to kind of recruit there and uh, a sort of an emerging model for tech talent in particular is you know, you join a company, you get your allocation of options, you wait about 15 months until you get past your one-year cliff, and then you join another company and you do the same again, and you build up a portfolio of small option positions, and you hope that one of those companies turns out to be Uber, you you Mm. know? Um, and unfortunately, that's driven a situation where, you know, a half-decent engineer is probably going to cost you $175,000 a year minimum, and they're probably going to stay for 15 to 18 months, you know. So it's actually become a pretty difficult uh, environment. And, um, you know, so so I think, I think the... Uh, I think Silicon Valley will remain relevant for sure, but I think it's kind of position as the, the kind of the A plus ultra of, of the tech world is, is, is probably in decline. I think, I think I might go over to Silicon Valley and start a recruitment business. There are some, there are some very interesting recruitment businesses out there already. So, uh, I tell you, you'd find it quite, uh, quite um, competitive, shall, shall we say, but but nonetheless remunerative. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, th- I, like I think it's good. Yeah, <laughs> Silicon Valley has obviously gotten extremely competitive in every single way. Is there is there a new Silicon Valley? Is is it Austin? Is is there anywhere else that maybe somebody would have a better chance of of making it making it big? Um. You know, I think the new Silicon Valley is remote, if you like. Um, I, um, I, I, I hate to hear people talk about, you know, Dublin being the European Silicon Valley, that kind of thing, because there's actually only one Silicon Valley, and it's a very, very unique place for a whole lot of reasons. 
Um, so I, I, I think kind of styling yourself as the next Silicon Valley or the new Silicon Valley, I, I, I just don't believe in that. And I believe what, what economies need to do and what countries and regions need to do is kind of play to their strengths and really think about, you know, what are the things that make us unique and, and, and give us advantages and, and really d- double down on those. But, um, you know, I think what we're going to see increasingly is is uh, great companies built primarily on a remote platform where you're you're able to hire extremely high quality talent that is kind of living in the mountains of Austria and, you know, um, people who, you know, who live in Brazil and they want to live in Brazil, but they still want to work for, uh, for, for, for a great company. And I think that's, that's, uh, that's going to be the, 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 the big trend. Um, of course, there'll there'll still be kind of major, major geographic centers as well. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think I think China clearly has has very much emerged in that respect in a number of areas. Um, I think Europe has great potential because the quality of the the sort of the R and D coming out of the universities is absolutely first class. We just need to get the environment better in terms of our ability to commercialize those innovations. It's so interesting that you mentioned the, the the kind of shift to remote work and building that company on that type of platform. One of my friends just I was uh, talking to him yesterday in HubSpot, um, and he's a like a data scientist, um, and he is looking. So he's he's from Cork, and he's uh, sending me stuff on Daft.ae, and he said he's gonna buy this house down there in Skibbereen because he can do the same <laughs> same work, but be hope, yeah. you know closer to uh, you know where he wants to live. Um, so I think. It's this the COVID uh, lockdown really kind of shone a light on on some areas where it's not as um, important to to have people all in one place, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, if you, if you think of it, it's it's um, you know, it's it's not just that we can work remotely, but um, for a lot of roles, there was a kind of a, a, a perception that you've got to be close to an airport. So, you know, it would be lovely to be able to live in Skibbereen and work from Skibbereen, but I got to be close to an airport. And I, I think COVID-19 is, is teaching us that probably a lot of the business travel that we did was in many respects unnecessary. So I think that's also going to kind of dilute the requirements to, to you know, to, 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 to locate close to airports or, you know, for everybody to be in an office together. Yeah, absolutely. So, what, Brian, sorry, Luke, go ahead. No, Mark, go ahead. I, I'm just thinking, I have two daughters, they're, they're six and eight, and they're big into technology whether that's computer games or actually the pc and, and figuring out stuff photoshop and they're they're really good at that age what if they were to to, to get and and we're always encouraging uh more females to get into technology um what areas would you re- would you kind of recommend would be the kind of the the best areas to kind of start focusing on for for opportunities for jobs uh say in the next 10 years I mean, firstly, congratulations, Mark. That's like, that's fantastic to hear. And that's, you know, I mean, 
I, I think, unfortunately, that's an area which in many respects has got worse, not better. Um, in, in my first business, when we were 10 people, six of those people were women. And, and you know, that didn't seem in any way strange or unusual to me. I tried to hire the best possible people for the role every time I went out to hire somebody. And, you know, we ended up with uh, with, with six out of 10 being, being women. Um and I think that would almost be hard to achieve now, you know. So it's it's really great to hear that uh, that your your daughters are, are are into tech. I mean, in terms of opportunity, I mean, the first thing I think is that technology is really going to kind of pervade everything. And you know, I would be an advocate of the idea that practically everybody should learn to code, you know. And it's not that it's a little bit like learning a foreign language in school. I think it's kind of at, 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 at that level. It's not that everybody is going to code for a living in in the future, but I think being able to code is going to be an incredibly, incredibly important skill, even if you're a doctor or, you know, uh, you know, if you're, if you're not working directly in the tech industry. Um, in terms of where the kind of the big opportunities are going to be, um, I, I would say in terms of, in technology terms, I think we're, we're now in a, the, the sort of the start of a second wave uh, of AI and, and data science. And I think that's, uh, that's an area where, if you, if you like, the opportunity is a very, very long way uh, from being played out. Um, in terms of, if you like, sectoral trends, I think it's always useful to look at, you know, how is the world evolving and to think about what's that going to do in, in terms of, um, you know, in, in terms of how the world works. So, you know, I'd be looking at things like the aging of the global population. That's not uniquely uh, an Irish or European phenomenon. It's, it, it, it's a global phenomenon. And that is going to create both huge problems and also uh, also huge opportunities, you know. So um, that will be everything from robotics, to uh, systems for, you know, um, remote monitoring of health. And, uh, you know, we're, we, we'll get to a point, for example, where because of the number of elderly people in the population, we won't have enough young bodies, if you like, to deliver health care in, in quite the way that we, we do today. Um, so, for example, in, in Ireland, there's a company called Acara Robotics, and they've been working on essentially a social assistance robot for, uh, for, for, for older people in, in nursing homes, you know. So you're right. going to see th- those, kind of, those kind of innovations, I think, become increasingly important. Well, when you, when you zoom out like that and you think about the, the big kind of, probably that's a humanity problem, right? So 
it's yeah. going to be something that, <clears throat> like Mark's, was, I think it was a great question. I think the older girl is learning Python right now. She's only eight, so I think yeah. it's a good start. Luke got, Luke got her a, a coding book, so she's been working away on that. But I think it helps when they have an interest. It it, does, it's hard to sure. force an interest on, on a child, I have to say. like yeah. they're, they're, they're not as big into football as, as I'd have hoped, but uh, big into coding right now, yeah. You should get them to check out, and full disclosure, I'm an investor in this company in a personal capacity, get them to check out Robotify, um, which is essentially a platform to help teach kids to code using robots. So they they get to control these virtual uh, robots and you know, it's one of the things that you know kids just find that really, uh, really engaging. So uh, get them, yeah. get them to check that out. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm, I'm personally kind of fascinated with the whole ro- robotics and and robots, and I think a lot of people are just from movies going back decades. Yeah. Has it has it kind of turned out the way you imagined? You know, the way maybe thirty years ago, what 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 it would be like today? Are we ahead of the curve? Are we ahead of what you thought it would be? You know, has it changed dramatically from what you kind of pictured? Like, we don't have RoboCop or anything like that, but you know what I mean? Like, has it, is it any way different to what, than what you imagined it would be in 2020? Um, that's a, an interesting question. I, I suppose the first thing is that I'd be slightly unusual in the sense that I've been kind of engaged in the world of AI um like literally since the mid eighties, my 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 final year project in, uh, in in college was essentially hacking the prologue kernel to enable it to inference in a slightly different way. You know, so I've been I've been kind of interested in in AI for a very long time, and you know, uh, I, I uh, we are still so far from what's referred to as a general artificial intelligence that it isn't true, you know, I mean, we can all park the robot overlord fears for a very, very long time um, into the future. And I think probably a lot of people at that stage would have expected faster progress in uh, in relation to AI that we've actually seen, because we did have, you know, I'd say a, a kind of an AI winter for the best part of, of 30 years, you know. Wow. Um, I think we're making great progress now, but I don't believe that we're making really material progress towards a, a, a general uh, a general AI uh, an AI if you like that that could could fool you in, into uh, into in, into believing it's a person in a in, in a real sense you know. Um, uh, and by the way, I should mention that just 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 because we're not going to have to worry about uh, about terminators anytime soon, that doesn't mean that there aren't risks and issues with with AI, and we we really do need to be very conscious of those. And you know, one of the huge uh, risks and, and concerns that I see is that if you have if you have data that fundamentally embeds bias 
and you're then training AI systems using that data, then effectively what you're 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 doing is you're you're creating a system that kind of encodes that bias, you know. Um, and there have already been some, you know, some uh, serious and, and, and kind of damaging examples of that. So there are definitely challenges. Uh, I'm not one of these people who believes that we can just blindly do wh wh whatever without even thinking about the consequences. Although I, I am a huge believer in the, the power of technology to solve great societal problems, you know. Um, I think... Going so regulation is obviously going to be huge, hugely important, just like in finance. How far on the, on the kind of reg side have people kind of looked into it and, and put, put kind of, you know, things in place to, to keep everything safe and not getting out of control at an early stage rather sooner rather than later? So I'm a little bit sceptical about, I, I think it's so important with regulation to find the right kind of balance, you know, and I think um, you can have all the regulation you like, but if it's not underpinned by the right kind of ethical principles in, you know, in, in people and, and teams, I'm, I'm not sure that uh, it's, uh, it, it ends up being, being helpful. And, you know, if I can give you one very specific example that you know of uh, if, if you like an unintended uh, effect if you look at the world of venture capital um it's almost impossible for an uh, an ordinary person to invest directly in a venture capital firm um you know you you or or a private equity firm um, you need to be deemed to be a qualified investor, and there's a whole lot of tests that you uh, that you need to be able to meet in order to be permitted under the regulations to, to make that investment. Now, th those regulations are are there to protect people, and and I absolutely understand that. But what they're also doing is they're disenfranchising people. They're they're meaning that you know these type of investments that can deliver great returns are actually only available to a, a subset of of the community, and that strikes me as as wrong. You know, uh, the, the 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 regulation designed to protect people is actually disenfranchising them. You know, so I think it's so important that we we kind of design those those regulatory in, environments better than we're doing today you know yeah so it's it's an interesting point because i think what the outcome is of what you're saying brian is that perhaps the people who are the um uh, qualified investors who are you know I'm, I'm sure i don't know what the tests are but maybe that's they have x amount in the bank they make it you know you know they've done this type of stuff before or something um, yeah they and i guess the the whole thing with venture capital is that there you have exposure to a, a big upside but also obviously the the risk as well but is, is does that mean that the people who are not qualified don't really have the ability to get involved with that type of upside so they're they're never going to get that do you know what i mean it, it, 
Exactly. They're they're uh, effectively excluded from, you know, participating in, in, in those types types of uh, types of investments. And I think people um, overestimate the risk in venture capital, not 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 from the perspective of an individual investment, any individual company that you invest in, you know, there's a high probability of of uh, of things going horribly wrong and and the company going out of business. But venture capital uh, funds, you know, they invest in twenty companies, okay. and they invest in twenty on the basis that of the twenty. You know, six are going to go out of business completely. Six will become what we call zombie companies, the, the, the living dead. They, they, the company continues to exist, but you're never going to get, you know, a, a return on your on your investment. Six deliver a kind of a, if you like, a decent return, um, you know, maybe three times your money. And, you know, you can kind of think of it in some respects that those six pay for the other 12. And then you have two that are, if, if you like, the kind of the fund returners, the, the ones that you uh, that, that, that you make, make the big gains on. Um, now, the, the problem, of course, is that at the start, you don't know which two, you know. Uh, uh, otherwise, of course, you just, just invest in those two. But the risk is very much mitigated by the portfolio effect, you know. Um, Absolutely. And so when you, so if we rewind the clock a little bit and you were in, you had just uh, got the, the VC investment. At that stage, were you thinking that this is something that you'd like to get into uh, or, or were you completely focused on the the software stuff? Or were you saying in the future, I'm like this. This was a really interesting process. This is what I want to do later on. Or how did you get into the actual investment part? Yeah, uh, so that's a that's a great question. I I would say at that time, you know, that at, at, at the time that Delta Partners were handing me the check, I had no ambitions to be in in venture capital. But um, the guy who led uh, the Excuse me. The 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 investment from Delta Partners at the time, this guy called Shay Garvey, and Shay is now one of the founding partners in Frontline. And you know, my experience of working with Shay on the development of uh, of of our business was an incredibly positive experience. You know, um, Shay had Shay had tools and techniques and terms of you know thinking about the strategy of the business that I didn't have and I found that very valuable um you know he had a, a network of people that that I didn't have so you know just as a, a trivial example or not sorry not trivial but we we ended up uh, appointing Jim Mountjoy as as chairman of, of the company and you know Jim would have been a reasonably prominent person on the tech scene in Ireland at, at, at the time but I didn't know Jim personally so the introduction from Shay to Jim was 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 hugely valuable and then you know beyond that um, we in in kind of 1999 we went through an incredibly diff- difficult time in the business due to something that was kind of external but it had a, a big big impact and um Shea behaved incredibly 
decently and supportively at the at the time you know he was supportive of, of of me personally and you know without going into the details of the situation it was so bad that that the kind of shay recommended that i go for counseling uh-huh. and i did go for counseling like tw- twice a week for uh, a period of time as we as we tried to, to kind of deal with this situation and during that period Shay actually invested more money in the company so that we could move to larger offices because we needed, I think at the time, we needed half a million in cash to put down the deposit on, uh, on, on, on these new premises. And I think Shay's, Shay's partners were saying to him, are you, are you out of your mind? And uh, I think his lawyers were saying to him, are you out of your mind? But he, but he was very, very supportive of the business. So I came through that experience with a very, very positive view on the relationship between, you know, entrepreneurs and, and venture capital investors and a very strong belief that it is a fantastic model for building great businesses. So, um you know, I mean, to be honest, if I was starting a new business tomorrow, I would want to have VC investors, you know, okay. I'd be very fussy about who they are. You know, I'd be extremely choosy, but I would want to have VC investors. So so after we sold um, that business and, you know, I was due to stay with, with Trintech for a couple of years, um, I... I I was very interested in the venture capital model at that stage. I guess I kind of hoped that maybe Shay might offer me a job, but uh, he that was he was much too smart for that. Um, but um, John Tracy from Trinity Venture Capital came along. And they were in the process of raising a new large fund. At the time, it was the largest tech fund in Ireland. It was 140 million euros. And uh, John asked me to do a couple of due diligence assignments. Um, and in fact, the first was on a company called Havoc, which subsequently went on to, uh, to be acquired by, by Intel and, and was a great success. And the founders of Havoc have actually founded multiple, uh, multiple successful uh, tech companies. So he asked me to do a kind of a due diligence assignment on, on Havoc initially. I didn't have the brains to realize that he was kind of just road testing me to see if I'd actually be any good at this. But uh, for, fortunately, um, he, he, he then approached me and asked me if I'd like to join the, the Trinity Venture Capital team. And, you know, I, I, I kind of concealed my excitement as much as I could while ne- negotiating salary and, uh, and all that kind of thing and, uh, and joined Trinity Venture Capital in, two, in 2002. And, you know, here, here I am 18 years later, broadly doing the same job. Good. So interesting as well. Like, it was nice that he, he was kind of testing you out, but didn't tell you. That was a that was kind of a shrewd move as well. Like that. Uh, and John is a shrewd is a shrewd guy. He's he's kind of semi retired now and uh, uh, kind of quiet and understated. Um, you know, not uh, uh, kind of a showy guy. But I I learned an awful lot from John. And so maybe I know we've believe it or not we've been really moving through the time here um the 
one of the things that we really wanted to ask you as well i think it would be great to get your your input on the how would i put this like we we had someone on a podcast last week who uh has a great business and i'm not saying that his he wants to do this or whatever but let's say that he has four people working in a a company they have a a quite a you know quite a nice business going for two years they're you know happy enough doing that um it could be scalable um it's profitable now in a you know a small way mm. do you think that at what stage do, would you suggest someone with that type of company uh, should be looking for outside investment or should they have been doing that at the beginning in their first year and would they be mm. you know five times as big now do you know what i mean what what's the kind of triggers in your opinion so, so uh, there's a couple of things I'd say about that. And the first, the first and by far the most important, I think, is that entrepreneurs should build the business that they want to build, you know. And, um, you know, for the sake of argument, if, if you own a business that's, you know, turning over two million a year, um, making a half a million profit, and you know growing at 10 percent per annum um that's a damn fine business to own um and you know you're maybe giving good jobs to to 10 or 15 people that's something to be very proud of and you're making a a great a great contribution to to your to your community and, and to society uh in in doing that um that's of zero interest to a venture capital investor. But if that's the business that you want to have and that you want to build, then, then that's what you should do. And I think where, where things kind of often, um, you know, if you, if you like leave the rails and we get into trouble is when an entrepreneur is kind of saying to me, okay, so what does the business need to look like for you to be interested. And I'm okay. kind of thinking, you know, we're, we're actually having the wrong conversation now because what's happening is that you're bending the plan for your business out of shape in order to, to, to make it attractive to me. And, you know, where that often ends up is, you know, may, maybe I do invest, maybe I don't invest. But you're now trying to kind of, if you like, execute against a business plan that you really don't believe in, you know? Okay. Um, so, you know, I don't think external investment or VC investment should not be seen as a kind of an end in itself. It should be seen as a very much a means to an end. So I'd encourage people to, to, to think very much about what do I want to be, do with the business? You know what? What do I what do I believe is possible? What's the, the 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 plan that I would like to execute for the business? And then out of that plan falls the capital requirements, and and then you start thinking about okay, well now what's the right route to uh, to financing that uh, that 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 capital requirement? You know. Um, so, you know, you, you to, to go back to your original question, you, you know, somebody might have a business that has fantastic scale potential, but they just don't want to go down that road, and and that's uh, and that's fine. Um, on the other hand, 
if you're targeting a very, very large market opportunity and you're ambitious to kind of capture that, uh, that, that, that opportunity and you believe that you have, if you like, a unique insight into that market opportunity, then I'd encourage you to, to, to think about raising capital quite early on because, you know, uh, I, ideas, the world is not short of ideas. Ideas are 10 a penny and almost all, every great market opportunity will be identified by multiple people in multiple locations, you know, at, at, at multiple times, if you like. Um, so it's very, very unlikely that any kind of major market opportunity is not going to be identified by, by multiple people and targeted by multiple people. So if you have that kind of opportunity, I'd encourage you to think about raising capital kind of quite early on, actually. And and when it comes to the the human part of it, like when a, when you're investing or a, or a VC is investing in a startup, there's plenty of things that they look at, uh, plenty of characteristics. What about the founder? What What would be the key... Um, characteristics of a successful founder or a founder worth investing in? I'm sure you've, you've plenty of kind of pattern recognition at this stage. Interested to know that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think for investors, the first thing actually is the market opportunity. Like, is this a market opportunity that's, that, that's really worth uh, going after? The second thing absolutely is, 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 is the people and, you know, there's actually kind of quite a long list of, of things that you want to see. I mean, firstly, you do like to see some kind of unique differentiated insight into uh, in, into that market opportunity. You, lo- you love to hear a founder saying, you know, here's where everybody else is getting it wrong, you know, and this is why we think we, we can win in that, uh, in that market opportunity. So you, you love to hear that kind of insight. Um, secondly, you, you want to be, to be backing somebody that you, you, you believe um, you know, you believe you're going to be able to have the right type of relationship with. So you want somebody with, you know, that you believe has, has very high ethical standards, um, somebody who's coachable. You, you'll hear VCs say that a lot. And that, that, that doesn't mean somebody who kind of takes everything that you say as kind of the tablets of stone uh, d- d- delivered from the mountain, but, but somebody that will will listen, argue the point, but but kind of take 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 on board advice and and not just advice from the VCs, obviously, but advice from from the team. So you, you want somebody who's coachable, and you want somebody who's compelling because great great businesses are built by teams so you really want somebody that you feel is going to be able to recruit great people you know um and there's you know the old sort of saying that a class people hire a class people and b class people hire c class people i totally believe in that you you know um so you really want somebody who's who's going to be kind of sufficiently kept compelling as a personality to be to be able to attract uh, to be able to attract the best talent and then finally i i think um 
a degree of self-awareness is hugely uh, valuable, you know. Um, I, I think a lot of founders, sadly, remain running their businesses at a time when they should have hired somebody else to run their business, you, you know, um, because typically people who are really good at getting something started, you know, that's actually quite a different skill set to managing a large business from an operational perspective. And I think very few people are actually able to successfully make that transition. And uh, a, a lot of people should should uh, should think harder about sort of saying, actually, you know what, my, my skill set is all about starting stuff and getting something going. And, you know, that's a different skill set to, to, to organizing and structuring and, and managing a large team of people. Yeah, definitely. And do you think the the why of, of like why they're doing it? Do you think that's that makes a big difference uh, along the way? Uh, that's actually a really great point, and I, I I should have mentioned that. I mean, I think um, you know, great entrepreneurs are nearly always passionate about the problem that they solve. You know, I I, I do a, a kind of a presentation from time to time where I've got like t- 10, 10 thoughts on innovation. And, and one of them is that kind of innovation requires grumpy people, you know, um, an awful lot of entrepreneurs are the kind of people who, who look at something and they sort of say, I cannot believe that's so shit, you know, mm-hmm. there has to be a better way of doing that. And it's, it's, it's that kind of, uh, that kind of motivation, that sort of, you know, God, that's crap. There's got to be a better way, and I'm going to find the better way. Um, and sometimes that's obviously a social problem that they're 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 trying to fix, or you know, some something that's uh, um, y- you know that that that's kind of really going to de- deliver for 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 people and for society. It might be something to do with global warming or whatever. But sometimes it's just a commercial problem, you know. Um, but you you do like to, to 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 see entrepreneurs who are really passionate about the problem that they solve. And are you kind of open to those which like which problem they're trying to solve? So, like, or is there a couple of uh, a couple of areas where someone brings a a deal to you or, or to the firm, and you're saying, okay, kind of an alarm bell goes off in your head, say, this is a space I know it's just about to blow up. We're just looking for the the right uh, way in you know yeah so so i mean it's 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 interesting especially in the context of of covid19 but you know for example for a very very long time if somebody came to me with a proposition uh that was kind of software that they were going to sell into public health services i'd have run a mile right um because uh, if, if, you, if you like technology insertion in public health services is just a, a really, really hard problem, incredibly long sales cycles, kind of issues in terms of the, the change management of the introduction of the software, you know, everything from kind of union related issues. 
that just make it really, really hard. And, um, you know, so that that's kind of an area where, uh, and, and within Draper Esprit, the approach that we took, we're huge, huge believers in digital health. And we probably have one of the greatest, uh, you, you know, European uh, digital health investors in the team, a, a guy called Vishal Galati. Um, but the approach that we took was that we were focused on opportunities that effectively bypassed the national health systems um, because they were just too difficult to penetrate and too difficult to, to kind of sell into, you know. Um, I think COVID may actually change that. We've seen a massive change in the level of inertia in the health systems, you know, um, and, you know, if you think of things like video consultation, that technology has been there for the best part of 10 years and has hardly been adopted at all, you know. I think we look back on that and kind of say, you know, how did we ever think this was a good idea to collect kind of 15 random sick people in the same small room while they wait to see their GP, you know? I mean, Brian, really... I've been thinking about that for years when I'm sitting there and people are coughing and stuff like that and I'm just going in to get, you know, something <laughs> There's a hypochondriac. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe a little bit, but uh, it's, it's definitely something that crossed my mind and said, this is... This is like this was before COVID, but this is crazy. We're all this is like a petri dish that we're waiting in. Yeah, everyone's absolutely the same yeah. things and filling it using uh, the same. And then and up. then you go in and and kind of nine times out of ten, you sort of you sit there and you have a chat with the GP, and you know they don't need to physically touch you or physically examine you an awful lot of the time. Um, and and they, they 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 write out a wetting uh, script, you know, and, and and hand it to you, and you go to the chemist. I mean, it's it's, it's crazy, you know. I didn't even, admittedly, I didn't even know until recently that my health insurance actually had a, a virtual doctor uh, as part of it for free. Yeah, so there's a monetary yeah. saving there as well. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I think the the first time I ever saw that, I was um, I just moved to Canada. And the 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 guy was outside. The, you know, in Canada, the, the, the marijuana is legal there, semi legal, whatever. So, like, all the 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 guys would be outside their shops trying to get people in to see the doctor to get a prescription. But the doctor was just on a screen, and then he, you just tell him what you what's wrong with you, and then he goes, "Yeah, sure, that sounds good to me." But uh, I remember yeah. saying that. So maybe the the companies that are on the fringes are are ado early adopters of these type of things, you know. Um, but uh, Mark, there is we're coming up to an hour here. Um, so this is when we usually bring in uh, some of Mark's questions here to compare to some of our other guests and all that type of stuff. Um, but maybe just one more question for me, just to, to pick your brain on, on a topic. If if you were so twenty five thirty, um, you had had a little bit of experience working in a, a tech company or something like that. What area would be your, where, where is, is it health the biggest opportunity that you can get into quickly? I, the one of, obviously, the, one of the biggest things like that is going to affect everybody, global warming, all that type of stuff, or uh, climate change. But that's a really, I think it's it's such a big problem to, to try to solve, you know. Um, what, if, you, if there was just one 
uh, industry there's probably a lot of them is there one industry where you'd say this is where I, this is worth spending my time for the next 10 years well i think digital health definitely you know i mean i, I think that again speaks to the issues around um kind of aging population and 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 the potential that, that, that that's going to create um i i also think um you know, climate change and, you know, response to climate change is going to be an area of, of enormous uh, opportunity over the next, uh, the, the, the next number of years. Um, I also believe that, if you like, enabling remote working and, and the tools that are, are needed to, to, to kind of facilitate that are, are going to be huge and you know it's it's not just things like c- communication tools like zoom that that's only part of the picture uh, you have um and again a company that's that, that i'm an angel investor uh, um, boundless what what they're doing is enabling companies to to legally and in a compliant way employ somebody in the czech republic you know and that even a small company is going to need to be able to do that to operate effectively as uh, as, as as a kind of remote as a remote business so there's a whole set of problems there that uh, I, I i think are are going to be gold dust um for uh for for, for companies uh, education is another space that I think is enormously underpenetrated by by technology. And again, I think COVID nineteen has been a bit of a wake up call. There, we've seen the, the the kind of whole disaster area that the kind of the leaving cert has has been. So I I, I think there's a lot of potential in the education space. Um, you know. Uh, there really is no shortage of opportunity. The, the other thing just to mention there, I, I'm always a little bit kind of suspicious of, if you like, the MBA approach to being an entrepreneur, which is kind of, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to graduate, I'm going to work for, for two years, uh, then I'm going to go back and do my MBA, then I'm going to work for McKinsey for three years, and then I'm going to start my first business, you know, and that produces a business plan that sort of says, we scoured the market and we found the most profitable market opportunity, and, and we're going to go after that. That rarely produces great results. You know, I, I think the entrepreneur does need a kind of a connection to the problem. So, I mean, if you're working in uh, a big tech company right now and you're thinking about, you know, I, 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 want, to, I want to start my own business, I'd be doing two things. I'd firstly be thinking about what am I personally passionate about? Right, and and are there opportunities in the space that 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 that, that I'm really passionate about? And secondly, I'd be talking to my customers, my existing customers, asking about them about their problems and their pain points. You know, I've I've always felt that one of the best ways to uncover an opportunity is through, you know, really close interaction with, with customers, you know, and 
it'll often be you'll uncover an opportunity which isn't an opportunity for your existing business. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, in fact, the, the the second company that that I started, which I, I co-founded with a guy called Gary Maroney, who's just a fantastic entrepreneur, um, we'd been doing some work in the first business for the Irish Credit Bureau, um, you know, systems for, for them, which were essentially early AI-based systems for uh, identifying um, credit records that applied to an individual. And I realized that fundamentally the problem that they had was actually a data quality problem and that there was an opportunity to create, uh, if you like, a data quality platform, which was quite generic, right? Now, that wasn't the business that we were in at all, right? But I identified that problem because I was just talking to a customer about, you know, what, what was hurting them and what was what was killing them. And that was the thing that enabled the identification of a very, very generic problem. Absolutely. I think that's a great tip as well, um, because... I remember I was one of my customers in Iceland. Uh, they had a, a product exactly like that, where they worked in some like a what was it like a cold logistics? So like you know they the software that uh, that tracks like the frozen fish being tra- <laughs> shipped all over the world, all that type of stuff. Um, and they came up with an idea uh, because they couldn't get the data that they wanted out of the the systems that they had bought. Um, so they had this really simple idea that was actually like a, it's almost like a, a spreadsheet, a spreadsheet plugin for that industry. And they're, mm. they've raised two million there doing incredibly well. Everyone wants that. And it's a very simple plug mm. for the gap that they saw. So I love that type of stuff. Um, so there, there you go. Hey, Mark, what's the story with those questions there? We'll, we'll get uh, Brian back to his, uh, his Saturday here. Yeah. Just kind of quick, easy questions. Some of them, um, boy, you can elaborate on the answers if you like. So, what what would be the the apps on your phone that you use the most? Uh, Google Maps use it just absolutely all the time. Um, WhatsApp uh, uh, up till relatively recently, I'd have been using Flight Radar twenty four uh, a huge a huge amount. Haven't haven't had much cause to use that uh, that that recently. It's one of the things that's always bugged me, the, the kind of flight information that's available in airports is is so shit. You yeah. know, you, you you'd be you'd be told your your flight is delayed by fifteen minutes, check flight radar twenty four and you kind of realise that the outbound hasn't even left Dublin and yeah. um, that used to just bug the hell out of me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, those would probably be uh, uh, so, some of the so e- email, of course, you know. Surely there's an opportunity there for to integrate the kind of that, that app into, into airports or. I think they're trying to manage think, it, Mark. I think they're just trying to keep everyone calm with the 15 minutes. If they say eight okay. hours, people just lose <laughs> yeah. their. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's that's true. You know. <laughs> that's actually the second time that app has come up as an answer. Yeah. Um, what's the the best be best? Sorry, the best idea you've never acted upon. I don't know if you want to give it away. <laughs> so, so um, I have this kind of I've had this startup idea for many years that I think is a, a, a really really good idea, and it's kind of tough to explain because what I wanted to do was to um, m- merge um, kind of 
tour apps, guided tour apps with um, user-generated content and um, effectively, if you like, target the, the kind of the long tail. Like, I think... To give you an, a, a simple example, there there are people in Ireland who are really, really interested in railways, you know, and they're obsessive about railways. And I'd love to be able to give them a really, really simple app that enables them to kind of record, if you like, a guided tour of Dublin focused on trains, you know, and um, essentially provide a platform that enables them to record those, but also to distribute them and to choose to monetize them if they want, right? And the idea is not just to target kind of the professional uh, uh, tour, um, uh, tour, tour leaders or, or whatever, but to also target that long tail of kind of enthusiasts if you like, rather than, you know, the kind of the more conventional, um, you know, historical tour of Dublin, you know, that, 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 that kind of thing. And various people have, have targeted aspects of that problem, like they've sort of gone after um, aggregating existing guided tour content, that, that, that type of thing. Uh, they've gone uh, gone after sort of aggregating the providers of walking tours and that kind of thing. But I actually think that there's a much, a much, much bigger opportunity um, there. I, I did try to get that one going by remote control, if you like, in um, to, to, to find a, a co-founder. And I found a woman who was just, absolutely incredible uh and uh, you know it was kind of a case of look i'm not messing around here i could give you half the company so you know we'll be co-founders but i think what i realized was that she didn't have the vision that I had of exactly what the what the opportunity was, and uh, actually, I'm still in reasonably regular contact contact with her. She's she's just an incredibly impressive impressive person. But we mutually came to the conclusion that that uh, that that it wasn't going to work. So that's kind of still on the shelf. And even though I probably first thought of that ten years ago, I still don't think anybody has put the pieces together in the right way interesting okay. cool mark so i'll put together a business plan now mark and you can, yeah. <laughs> um if you could do a business anywhere in the world where would it be so where's the, where do you think the best place in the world is to do business maybe it's maybe it's remotely now but yeah i, I mean I, I i think ireland has has many assets and many deficiencies as a, as a location to to do business um you know i i, I think i think the, the the us has a has a fantastic environment in terms of access to capital and ease of doing business and so on so i i mean i, I think the the us is is a great place to do business 
I think as a society, it's so challenged in an awful lot of ways that I'm not sure I'd, 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 I'd want to live there. I mean, similarly, if I think of the UK, um, London is an absolutely phenomenal international city. Um, they have fantastically supportive schemes to enable early stage companies to raise capital, all, all that kind of thing. But again, I'm, I'm not sure I'd want to live in London. And I think increasingly people will think much more about that. They'll think about, you know, where do I want to live? What's the lifestyle I want to, 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 uh, to, to have? And what sort of society do I want my kids to grow up in? And, and that, I think, ends up being kind of more and more of a driver. And, and, and maybe why remote, I think, is, is going to be the next bit, Silicon Valley. Yeah. Which is great. Yeah. Um, is it who you know or what you know? It's a combination of both. Um, you know, um, if I think of, you know, my family, but both my parents grew up in council houses. Um, so they were not people who were in any sense kind of connected or, or, or anything like that. Um, they were incredibly committed to education. And, you know, I think in terms of how do you bring people out of poverty, I think there are two things that give you real leverage, education and entrepreneurship. Um, but, uh, you know, relationships matter. Relationships really matter. And I, I think, you, you know, put time into building relationships with people and that will always matter good answer um okay last two if you could learn if you could advise someone to learn one skill what would it be uh learn to sell um you know even even if you are the technical founder or co-founder of a company you are in the business of persuasion all day, every day. One of the best things that I ever did was was do a sales training program, and I'd encourage, you know, any entrepreneur, whether you're the the, the sales guy, the you know the the, the person leading uh, technology, uh, it doesn't matter. You're in the business of persuasion, and. and you know, uh, persuading people to join the team, persuading customers, you know, persu- persuading people to stay. You, you know, there is almost no important, more important skill in my view. Such like so many That's people have answer. that answer as well. So it's been uh, we've lost our background there as well. It was falling down when we were answering that. Answer. <laughs> so anyway, so Mark, it's uh, okay. Last one. Just on the end. Um, what book would would you recommend to the eighteen-year-old you? The eighteen-year-old me. So, so I probably would recommend a book that I I probably didn't read until I was like twenty-five or twenty-six, um, which is called "How We Know What Isn't So," and the the subtitle is "The Fallibility of Human Reason in in Every Everyday Life," and. I would describe it as being a little bit like an early version of thinking fast and slow, but I, I believe it, uh, and, and in fact, uh, Daniel Kahneman refers to the book and to the author many times in thinking fast and slow, but I think it's much more practical, much, much more digestible, 
And, you know, it kind of really exposes you to the kind of the mistakes people make in terms of how they think about things. And actually, I think that's something that has been exposed massively in an awful lot of the hype around kind of COVID-19 data and so on, you know. So I think that's a book that... If, if if you really believe you're a smart person, you you should read that book. Perfect, great it's answer. One, it's one that we we haven't uh, come across as well, so you might dig into mm. that, Mark, as well. Um, yeah. But we have one more. Are we all are we all good. No, that's it. That's, that's it. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, Brian, we'd like to thank you very much for coming along to the the Shark Pod here. It gave uh, our, our listeners uh, a real view into something that in in Ireland it's still. I know uh, we're talking about VC being there since the mid '90s, but it's still kind of uh, a mystery to a lot of people as well even people that are starting businesses we we see the silicon valley stuff uh we listen to those podcasts but it's important to know that uh, this type of thing is available here in ireland as well you know um, it, so. it, it absolutely is and there's some there's some uh, really really good quality venture capital firms here in ireland and uh, now there's also some rather poor ones but uh, there are some really good quality teams and people involved in the venture capital industry Perfect. So I might uh I might ask you to send me, send us an email with the with the poor ones. We'll we'll try to avoid them in the in the future. Won't name any names. But uh, thanks very much, well, Brian, for joining us. If you're raising money, come and talk to me, and uh, you know I might have an off the record conversation. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Perfect. When we get that idea, uh, we'll make sure to to drop by your office uh, unannounced just to, uh, pop in. All right. Thanks very much. Uh, okay. Thanks.